Joe Thomas, one of the best offensive linemen in NFL history. There's no reason we can't do it in Cleveland. Now retired, the 10-time Pro Bowler played a record-setting 10,000-plus consecutive snaps. Offensive line are, are mushrooms. Everyone wants to throw us in a dark room and throw shit on us every day. This future Hall of Famer has done it all for the Cleveland Browns, a team plagued by decades of futility. How do you handle so much losing? It's something that's difficult for the human mind to wrap themselves around. Now led by Baker Mayfield, brighter days appear to be ahead for the franchise. But during those frustrating times, Thomas stuck by his squad. It would just mean so much more to be part of building a champion, not just riding the coattails of a champion. The Browns vet admits he's already feeling the effects of his years on the field. What does concern you the most on that front? You know, you walk to the grocery store and you're like, Huh. Can't remember what I needed to get. And gives his outspoken take on Commissioner Roger Goodell and the NFL draft. Going to New York for five days and kind of being paraded around by the NFL. Hey, look at me, everybody! I was like, why would I want to do that? That sounds horrible. All that's coming up next, right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. So I wanted to start by taking you back to when uh, you were growing up. Uh, oldest of three, I think your father, Eric, was a banker, uh, and then you had two other siblings, each separated, I think, by four years. Mm -hmm. um, how true is it that your parents initially held off on having your two other siblings just because of how much of a terror you were? <laughs> I think it's actually very true. That's the story that I get from my parents. But um, when I was a kid, I had so many bruises on my head from how wild and crazy that I was that they would take me to the doctor and the doctor wanted to put a helmet on me. Like, oh, legitimately. Legitimately put a helmet on and not let me take it off until I was six or seven years old because I was just so wild. I, I could not be tamed. Like, what would you do? Or what have you heard? You, you know, I, I don't remember quite right. too much, but uh, and now you got three the kids stories, too, yeah. So and luck. what I've seen from my kids is like just wild. I always wanted to be outside. I wanted to be climbing trees. I wanted to be jumping off the couch. I wanted to be rolling in the dirt. I wanted to be playing in the river, playing in the lake. Um, just any Tom Sawyer type of thing that you could think of. And did your parents not let you watch TV? Is no TV. We actually didn't have cable growing up. And uh, the only time we got to watch TV was if mom was making dinner and, you know, Sesame Street was on from 5 till 5.30. Well, Mom was making dinner. That was kind of the TV time. And other than that, we were uh, kicking the in the butt, get outside, and go do something that a kid would do. That was really important to them that you were outside. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like that's probably how I'll raise my kids because I really do appreciate that. You know, all my friends were vegging in front of the TV, and uh, for me, it was always you got to find your fun outside. Okay, and so that wasn't unique then to like. I mean, that wasn't something that all your friends did in the area because like everybody grew up outdoors mm -hmm. this was i mean your friends were watching tv and your yeah parents yeah were, but i was usually okay. the one dragging them outside getting on my bike getting yeah. a baseball bat or getting a football and going outside to play and enjoy ourselves so what happens one day when you bring home a c in algebra <laughs> uh it's funny that you picked that up i have no idea you must have talked to my mom uh, but I actually was grounded. It was like uh, the beginning of the year, so it was the first maybe report card, and I think I got grounded. No friends, no hanging out with 
uh, buddies for maybe three months. So it was some pretty harsh punishment. So I had to make sure that that next grade was at least a B minus. That yeah. was the cutoff. So I was like, all right, I just need to know my standard. How, how well do you recall um, as a kid an opposing coach yelling at you to get off the field because of how big you were? <laughs> I do remember that when I was playing football in seventh grade, especially, I was 140 pounds and there was a weight limit on carrying the football, which was 140 pounds. So I was right at that limit because I was a pretty big kid, obviously. And I was a fullback at the time. So I would carry the football. And then, of course, the opposing coach would always be screaming that he's too big. Weigh that kid, you know, and I didn't really hear it. But I think my parents did and, and uh, our our friends that would come to the game, and I think they took offense to right. it. But uh, I mean, didn't me, it like didn't one time it difference. get you worked up as a kid, like or like it hurt your feelings because you got made fun of some because of your size? Well, I think one time what happened is the enough parents were complaining about it that uh, the little youth football commissioner came to our practice and actually took me off the field and weighed me in like the high school scale just to see that I was relatively close to make sure that it kind of quieted the the angry masses from around the youth football league. How did you handle that? You know, at the I, time? I think I was upset about it probably because I any kid would think, why are you picking on me? That type of stuff. It's but, kind of embarrassing. Yeah, right? you know, a little embarrassing as a kid. Um, but I feel like I probably got over that. Once once that was put to bed, it was kind of nice to get over it. Right. Um, how often would you hurt kids because of your size when you, <laughs> you were playing goalie in soccer? <laughs> you know, the, when people ran into me when I was a goalie, usually I didn't fall down. They were the ones that were going down and there was a few times that kids got hurt, but more than that even, I remember when I was a kid, my best friend across the street, his name was Nicky Hamill, and I swear every year I was breaking a different one of his bones when we were playing hockey or we were playing backyard football or whatever we were doing. He was always getting the brunt of it because I was so much bigger than him, and we would always try to duke it out, and uh, he always ended up on the losing side. And I felt really bad because I broke his collarbone, I broke his finger. I mean, there was all sorts of injuries for that poor kid. What did his parents say? You know, I don't remember, but I think his parents said something like, maybe we shouldn't play with that Thomas kid anymore. Uh, did you go from, uh, and I read this, and it like seemed like there was no way it could possibly be accurate. Freshman year of high school, 6'3", <laughs> 140 pounds, to senior year, 6'7", 270 pounds? Uh, a little inaccurate. Okay. When I was in seventh grade, I was 6'3", 140. Okay. And then when I was a freshman in high school, I was 6'7", 220. And then by the time I was a senior, I was 250. So I wasn't... I mean, that's still like 80 pounds in two years, right? Well, no, so seventh grade, seventh grade. Seventh grade to ninth grade. To ninth like, grade. So one, yeah, so 80, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, yeah, I uh, grew fast in puberty. <laughs> <laughs> um, why do you think you excelled at like so many different sports in high school? Well, I think my parents gave me athletic genes. Um, I think that was a big part of it. You know, they, uh, uh, I'm sure my mom would have been a good athlete had she have played sports and my dad was a pretty good high school athlete and then obviously my height and I think too they just got me involved in a bunch of different sports um, which I think kind of helped 
develop and blossom my athleticism in, in different fields. Were, were they encouraging of it at the time, or were you the one that was, mm-hmm. you know, wanting to do this and mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. Well, remember, we didn't have cable, so they were encouraging of okay. anything that'll get me out of the house and kind of expend some of my energy so right. I wasn't jumping off the couch and breaking my neck. I, I mean, even late in high school, why did you think that basketball was actually going to be your sport? Well, I was really tall and skinny, and so at that time I was kind of expecting maybe I would keep growing, and mm-hmm. you know, six seven's a great point guard in the NBA, but uh, I don't exactly have the quickness or speed nor ball handling skills to play basketball. But, but at the time, obviously, but at the time, you thought, I was tall I mean, and you thought basketball, and, you were more skilled at than football. Yeah, because my body was a basketball body at the time. Like I said, 250, six, seven, maybe if I grew another couple inches, you could play, you know, forward. And I was much more heavily recruited in basketball when I was younger because I was one of the taller kids and pretty good athlete and um, pretty decent basketball player. But it wasn't until kind of towards my senior year when I stopped growing and people realized, hey, you might be able to play football because I was pretty good on defense in football, but I wasn't very good as an offensive player yet. But I think the college coaches kind of saw the athleticism from football and they saw um, some of my talents on the, on the basketball court and they figured that um, I'd be a natural fit to play offensive line. And what made you realize that was the direction you should pursue? Well, uh, it was fairly easy because I had... Virginia Tech, Notre Dame, Nebraska, Wisconsin, Miami, recruiting me for football. And I had Holy Cross and UW-Milwaukee and uh, Marist and all these somewhat smaller schools recruiting me for basketball. And so it became pretty obvious uh, what sport I was better at. So that kind of made the decision for you. I mean, and you didn't give any thought at the time to, hey, just go to like a smaller... Uh, lesser quality program to keep pursuing yeah, basketball? Yeah, you know, I, it wasn't that I loved one sport over the other. Okay. Um, for me, I just love sports. I just yeah. love competing. I love being out there with other guys, practicing and throwing elbows and getting my energy out. And so for me, I was just going to ride it as long as I could. And and uh, the basketball was kind of maybe you could get a scholarship. And the football was like, here's all your scholarships. And it was pretty natural to say, well, football's my opportunity to keep playing sports. And I actually got recruited, too, by a number of uh, colleges to do track and field. Um, And so that was part of the allure to go to Wisconsin was to be able to compete on the track and field team as well. Right. Why was that important to you? Because I just like doing a lot of sports. I probably, you know, there was a time in, in high school when I was thinking, hey, if I go to Wisconsin, I could do basketball, track, and football together. And that, wouldn't that be fun? But then I think you kind of come to the realization that uh, college football is more like a job than it is high school football. Yeah. And you don't really have time to do all three sports, but track and football really makes sense because football is in the fall and track's in the spring, and you've got plenty of time to do both. How quickly did you realize, though, that you couldn't do all three in college? Um, I think... Uh, when I was being recruited by Wisconsin, maybe my senior year, there had been a basketball player who did both. And I talking to the coaches and they were kind of telling me how difficult it was for him. And I just kind of got the realization too, that I just wasn't that good at basketball to really be able to keep up with those guys. You know, they could throw me in there and I could get a couple fouls and a few rebounds, but 
I just didn't have the ability to score with any of those guys or really um, get on the floor for any significant minutes. So it would have been a huge sacrifice to make to be a bench warmer in basketball, and I just wouldn't. Yeah. I just figured that football just makes way more sense, football on track. Right. Co- correct me if I'm wrong, um, but you never thought you were going to be able to make it to the NFL. Never and, even thought about it. And your dad as well yeah. didn't yeah. think so. My parents were really good at keeping me grounded and kind of letting me know. <laughs> keeping like, your expectations yes, low. Yes, yes, exactly. That was with everything, with Christmas. Hey, you're not getting any gifts. And then, hey, if we give you a new pair of socks, you should be very happy. Right. No, I'm just kidding. They were really great and generous. But that was kind of the motto, you know, and that's, I guess, the motto that I kind of carry on with me and my family and my kids. But uh, I mean, but if you didn't think you can do it, make it to the NFL, and, like, your dad didn't, think mm-hmm. that that was necessarily the path what then gave you the confidence to mm-hmm. keep pursuing it well I think part of the reason they kept the expectations where they were is because they saw uh, correctly so that a lot of kids have this NFL dream and they forget the reality that not many guys make it to the NFL in addition uh, a lot of guys commit to trying to make the NFL when they have no chance and they give up on their academics and so they didn't want me thinking, oh, I'm going to just go play in the NFL so I don't have to worry about my studies. Yeah. So they wanted to make sure that I, I focused on that. And, and they were realistic about the fact that there just wasn't a lot of opportunity to make the NFL because of the chances of it happening. And I think it never prevented me from giving my best effort in college football. And it wasn't really until my junior year when people started asking me if I was going to come out early for the draft that I realized I even had a chance to play in the NFL. Um, and then that at that point, I, then I realized, like, wow, okay, I am good enough to play in the NFL, and I might get drafted. You remember the first time somebody asked you that? Yeah, it was actually, I think my offensive line coach, Jim Huber, at the time, he kind of was started talking to me about it, and I'm like, what are you talking about? I've only been a starter for a couple of years. Like, you've you got to be way better to play in the NFL. Like, I have no chance, and... He started talking to me, oh, yeah, you know, we have scouts coming in that are starting to ask about you. And and I was just flabbergasted because, like I said, my parents never, you know, opened up that door for me and I never opened it up for myself. And I think that was a good thing because it just kind of kept me focused and humbled on the things that I'm doing in my life and, um, you know, worry about uh, school and, and you're going to show up and give your all on the football field. So. It's not a concern, and whatever happens, happens. Right. They kept your expectations in line with reality, so you had a quality backup plan. And when you're getting a 3.5, 3.6 GPA in college and interning at Merrill Lynch or you know wherever <laughs> else, you, you spent time, you're preparing in case it doesn't exactly. w- work out or yeah. if th- your career in the NFL is only mm-hmm. you, you know a, a couple of years. I know this story's been become that kind of a of legend, but... Um, why decide to go fishing instead of attend the draft mm-hmm. when, you know, you would have had the opportunity mm-hmm. to, you know, be there in, on national TV, mm-hmm. have your name called in the front of the world? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, even to this day, I'm, I'm be- I've become more comfortable with media attention and more comfortable behind a camera or a microphone because you have to do it so much in the NFL. But in college, you don't have that experience all that often. And so my nature is kind of just to shun most of the spotlight. And I've just kind of 
done the things I've done because I've enjoyed it. Uh, love, always loved playing sports, loved football, um, enjoyed family and friends, and so I've just kind of always done that stuff, never for any of the attention or anything like, like that. And so the idea of um, going to New York for five days and kind of being paraded around by the NFL as they you know, make money off your every step and the whole purpose is just for publicity for me to stand there in a suit and go, hey, look at me, everybody. You know, give the commissioner a hug and everything. I was like, why would I want to do that? That sounds horrible. I can't imagine a reason why anybody would want to do that, but people most, do it every year. I mean, most people, most people are do excited. It. And by actually, it, yeah. actually, the NFL was like shocked that I didn't want to do it. I'm like, that doesn't sound like fun. That sounds horrible. <laughs> like, I just like football and I like hanging out with my friends and stuff. And, this sounds horrible. I don't even own a suit. I mean, how, where am I going to get a suit for to go to the draft in New York? And at that time, I didn't really have a lot of experience in big cities, and I've hey. never been to New York before. And I was like, "That's a big, scary place. Why would I want to go to New York? Like, that's where people go to die. Like, this is oh, I can't do this." And and uh, on top of that, it was it was like uh, the pre-draft process is very intense, and uh, the combine and the pro day and the workouts and the interviews you do and it's very busy and and kind of the draft weekend it can be that last moment that you have sort of in your life that you've become accustomed to for the last four or five years if you're just in college there or for me I was in living in Wisconsin my whole life up to that point I think I was 22 years old and so <clears throat> once you get drafted you immediately get whisked away to the city that drafts you and immediately start your new life because you go right into OTA practices and mini camp practices and you buy a house or you rent an apartment right away and then you get a couple weeks off in the summer and then you're back into the season and, and your old life is gone. And so your last kind of opportunity to spend some time with your family and your old life is right around the draft. And so I didn't want to miss that opportunity to be able to enjoy an afternoon fishing with my dad which is something that we had done growing up a ton of times on Lake Michigan I mean especially before I really got deeply involved in sports that was like every Saturday my dad would wake me up at 3:34 in the morning and I'd jump in the back of the car and fall asleep in the car we'd get to the lake I'd get in the boat I'd fall asleep in the boat and he'd wake me up as soon as we started catching fish and uh, so the the memories that I had doing that um, and knowing that um, life was about to change, I wanted to just really enjoy that with my family. And, and so it was more a way to kind of shun the spotlight mm -hmm. and shun kind of the attention of the NFL draft. And it was funny that it kind of turned into more of an attention thing than I expected, and then maybe even more than if I would have gone to the draft, because nobody would be talking about me on draft day if I would have gone to the draft. Right. But since I didn't go, it became a story unintentionally. And uh, so it's kind of funny how those things happen. But I definitely don't regret being there on the boat that day because I had a really fun day. And it looked like those guys at the draft were sweating it out. What did the NFL say when they found out you were declining? Well, it was, it was so funny because obviously they have a huge vested interest in getting the players there, right? I mean, basically they have... Uh, millions of viewer audience that are watching this show and they need characters in their show. They need actors. Right. And so they need cheap actors. 
And what's better than cheap actors is free actors. And they get all these players to show up for free, and then they become part of the soap opera of the NFL, which is, which is great for some guys. The guy that goes first overall and holds that jersey up, he's happy, his family's there, and you know, everyone gives him the pat on the back, and he gets to hug the commissioner, or has to hug the commissioner now. Okay. Uh, but then there's the guy that just plummets in the draft, and he's there sweating it out, and he's got five cameras in his face. Your and, teammate, once teammate Brady Quinn. Exactly. And a couple years before that, Aaron Rodgers. And right. I saw that, and that left an impression on me. You know, for, for them to abuse a player like that that's doing that for free, uh, I thought was, it was really tough. And I was like... At that time, a young guy, I was thinking to myself, too, I don't know if I could handle that. I mean, that would be emotionally crushing. I mean, Mm -hmm. you become the story of the draft, and your failure is the story of the draft. That's what they're selling. They're selling that drama. And then for the next four hours, it's you twisting and turning in your seat, wondering when you're going to get drafted, and that becomes the reason people watch the draft is to watch you sweat Mm-hmm. That sounds terrible. For free. Right. Can't believe it. If you knew you were going to go number one, would you have gone? No. Okay. Uh, right. I, like even that, like I, I could see the guy that really loves attention, mm-hmm. you know, would want to be on TV, get his face up there, maybe get his Nike commercial or his Under Armour commercial or Snickers or whatever he wants to sell. You know, that's great for him. That's just that's just not exactly who I am. There was no social media when I was a rookie, so these kids are a little different these days. Uh, um, Wait, to describe the moment uh, when you're on the out fishing with your dad Mm -hmm. of getting the call. Well, it was a fun day, but it was interesting because um, originally my plan was I was going to go hunting because I just didn't want any cameras around. I wanted just to kind of get away from it. I was just kind of burned out from the whole pre-draft process. I just wanted to play football. I was like, I don't care where I go. I just want to get it over with and just start working on becoming a rookie and having the best rookie career, rookie season that I can have. And my agent's like, you can't do that. They need to be able to call you before they draft you because I guess many years ago, one team accidentally drafted a player that had passed away. And so now they want to make sure when... Five minutes before they draft you, they want to call you and make sure you're alive, first of all. And they also want to make sure that nothing has changed in your situation since the last time they talked to you, which was probably a couple of days ago. They want to make sure that on if the draft's Saturday, on Friday night, you didn't go out and go to the bar and get arrested for beating somebody up, and now they're drafting you, and uh, you're, you've got an arrest on your record that they don't know about. Right. So they need to be able to contact you. So he was like, you can't go hunting by yourself like you can't do it so i was like well can i go fishing he's like well if you can have cell service and if you can listen to the draft on the radio to kind of listen along so on the boat that we were on they had the radio on and they got like xm radio or something where they could get the draft on mm-hmm. there so we could listen to the draft and i had a cell phone and we had to kind of troll in the boat close enough to cell phone towers <laughs> where, we, where if they needed to call me we could right. like pick it up um, but I did want to answer your question about what the NFL thought because it's oh, yeah, kind of yeah. interesting. Right, right. So Gil Brandt, who is a legendary NFL scout sure. for the Cowboys, and now he works for Commentary. the NFL right. and the Combine and all that stuff. Great guy, um, great scout, but he was kind of in charge of deciding who gets to go to the draft. And at that time, it was five players maybe. 
And so I was one of the five players selected, and they sent you the letter from Gil, and it's, hey, congratulations, you're going to come to the draft on behalf of the NFL. Great job, buddy. And I was like, okay, no, I'm not. So I just like threw the letter away or whatever. And uh, you know, a couple of weeks later, I'm I'm getting all these calls from this number from I don't even know where it was from. And I pick it up, and it's you know Gil, and he's like, you have to come to the draft. Nobody's ever turned it down. And I kind of tried to give him the explanation. You know, I'm just not somebody that seeks attention or the spotlight, and so it just it just doesn't appeal to me. And I'm just gonna you know spend the day with my family, just kind of low key. I don't want to have a big party. You know, I'm not. I mean, I like the party, but I'm not like the guy that wants to have. A hundred people over watching TV, and you know, sure. I got drafted because right. to me the draft was just the entry into the NFL. It wasn't the event that I'd been planning my whole life, which kind of goes back to I never really thought I was going to be in the NFL, so I never dreamed of being drafted. So that wasn't like a big day to me. To to me, the draft was a, a non-event. It was it was I want to be with my team to get ready to play football because. Rookie year is kind of when your career starts, and I want to be a great NFL player. I don't care about where I'm drafted. Um, but anyway, so he, he kind of like hung up, and I get a call like three days later, and, and now they're getting more upset. They're like, you have to come. Nobody's ever turned it down. you know. And then it started turning into the, the teams are going to think you're a prima donna, and they're not going to want to draft you anymore because you, you're shunning the draft. And, and they tried to turn it into like me seeking attention or me uh, – trying to pull something on the NFL or being anti-establishment or whatever they were trying to accuse me of being to try to coerce me into showing up at the draft. And I think, I really thank my agent, Peter Schaefer for just being real upfront about it and saying, look, these guys are just BS in you. They're just doing what they can to try to get you there because they need the actors for their TV show right. to show up so that they can sell tickets and get people to watch on TV. So they need, they need you guys there, but so, so who you don't is, have to go. Who is saying I'm like, well, that? I don't want to go. Right. Who is saying that? I mean, um, like, right. It was coming from Gil Brandt, but I'm okay. sure it was coming. It, I mean, it was coming right. from the people at the NFL and who were saying, "Hey, Gil, it's it's your responsibility to get these guys there." So, right. you know, and so they were coming up with every excuse in the book on why I had to go to the draft or teams. I'd be undraftable, right? I'm, my agent's like, no. Like, if anything, teams are going to respect that you're not all in it, thinking that the draft is the end of your career. That mm-hmm. you're just thinking of the draft as a non-event and you're excited about being a rookie and playing in the NFL and being great in the NFL. So you're out on the boat, you're trying to keep close to cell towers, you're listening to it on the radio, (laughs) uh, and, you know, how did you find out? So the Browns called me, and thankfully we were close enough um, to cell service that we could get the call. Um, But... Uh, Jamarcus Russell went first overall to Oakland. I'd heard the day before that we weren't going to go first overall and that it was either going to be Detroit or Cleveland. And if Cleveland didn't take me, they might trade out and somebody else might trade up. But we had a pretty good idea. I probably wasn't going to go past number three. And so I wasn't listening too intently with the first pick because we kind of knew it, was, it wasn't going to be. It would be either be... Calvin Johnson or Jamarcus Russell was kind of the scuttlebutt on the street. And so once Detroit was on the clock with the second pick, that's when we started kind of listening. But we were still catching some fish. So I was, you know, a little preoccupied reeling my big yeah. trout in. And it was right after the second pick where Cleveland called me when they were on the clock and, and said, hey, you know, this is Romeo Cornell. This is Phil Savage. We want to congratulate you on becoming a Cleveland Brown. And at that point, you know, I was... Woo-hoo, we were hooping it up and high-fiving. And at that point, 
um, my agent called and, and he said, uh, hey, we need to get back to shore because Cleveland's flying you as soon as you can to Cleveland for like a press conference. And so at that moment, the whirlwind started and um, it was just as crazy as I expected it right after that. Uh, emotional? A little bit, but I, it wasn't unexpected. Yeah. So I think that kind of tempered the emotion a little bit. What was it like uh, the first time playing at Lambeau Field? Mm -hmm. It was emotional for me. Um, growing up in Wisconsin, I was a big Packer fan my whole life. I'd only been able to go to one or two Packer games because tickets are so difficult to get in Wisconsin, uh, especially in the 90s because the Packers won the 96 Super Bowl, 96-97 Super Bowl, um, and they went to the next Super Bowl, and they were just a great team in the late 90s with Reggie White and Brett Favre and multiple Hall of Famers on that team. And Favre and, was kind of as close to an idol as you oh, ever had, Oh, absolutely. Right? For me, Brett Favre, Reggie White, those guys were gods when I was a kid because every Sunday I'd watch the Packers with my dad. Um, right after church, we'd, we'd race home and we'd sit down on the couch, and that was the only TV I got to watch during the week, and it was awesome. I mean, it was uh, it was a real family experience, and so... The couple times I did get to go to Lambeau Field, it was like, this is your coming into adulthood moment. Like, my dad and his buddies brought me into the fold, and I got to go to their tailgate and, like, go to the game with them. And uh, I remember the, f the first game I went to was actually a playoff game against the Vikings. And it will live in infamy because it was the game that... Uh, sorry, it was the game that uh, Randy Moss scored a touchdown and pulled his pants down, yeah, yeah. or pretended to, right. and like, wiped his butt on the goalposts. Right, right, right. And we were sitting like way up in the nosebleeds. And I remember leaning over to my dad and saying, "Hey, Dad, what did he do? Why did he get a penalty?" And my dad was like, oh, "I'm not sure what happened, son. You know, even though I'm sure he saw it, he just didn't want to have to explain to his, you know, 14 year old kid what this guy was doing." Right. But uh, it was it was an amazing experience. So then when I finally got the opportunity as a player to come back to Lambeau and play there. There was just an emotional feeling just walking out of that tunnel, and that was kind of living a childhood dream. Because I think anybody that grows up in Wisconsin dreams of playing for the Packers, just like any kid that grows up in northern Ohio dreams of being a Cleveland Brown and walking out of that tunnel at um, First Energy Stadium. You've been to 10 straight Pro Bowls. Um, what does that mean to you? Uh, I think, you know, when it's all said and done, it'll be special. And it's special to me um, to have double-digit Pro Bowls because it's something so few people have done. Um, and I think it's, it's almost the most special to me to be able to be in the same breath with some of the legends that have played in Cleveland that have achieved those same similar number of, of Pro Bowls. Um, and the two guys that come to mind are Jim Brown and Lou Groza, which are two of the greatest names in football history and probably will live on for another 100 years as some of the greatest names in football history. And so to have my name in that category just because of the Pro Bowl selections, um, it, it's special. And I think, uh, you know, when it's... When I'm done and retired in 10 or 15 years, you'll look back on that and, and think about um, that accomplishment. How many consecutive snaps have you played? That's a good question. Actually, I don't know the exact number. 
because um, it's not an official stat. It's almost like a tackle stat. For people that follow football closely, they understand that tackles are stats that are kept by the teams. So it's not like a sack or a catch or anything like that. It's not an NFL stat. So nobody really has a good exact number. The Browns tried to tabulate it this year, and so they thought it was somewhere right around 10,000. Right. Um, but it's not an official stat that we have tabulated. And to give that context, that's every single snap that you could have played for 10 years. Right, exactly. So on average, you play about 1,000 snaps in a season, um, you know, roughly 68 to 72 per game, and then, you know, over a 16-game season. It roughly comes out to right, right around 1,000. So throughout my career, every season has been about 1,000 snaps. And what does it mean to you to have never missed one? Um, to me, that's kind of special because I think I've kind of prided myself on durability and toughness throughout my career, even going back to college and high school and so I think that statistic is kind of um, a sense of pride for me a, a huge deal yeah uh, yeah um, and I, I think Gabriel, you've had three MCL sprains one LCL tear there have been a few times during pregame warm-ups where you were unsure if you were even going to be able to play in the game how, how true is that <clears throat> that's true i think anybody that plays 10 years in the nfl on the offensive line is going to have a lot of games where they just don't feel very good because injuries are going to happen um, if you play one nfl season you're going to have some type of injury whether it's a significant injury that keeps you off the field or sort of a, a nagging type annoying injury like an mcl sprain or uh, you know some type of meniscus tear where it's going to hurt, and you're not going to feel great, but you're able to play through it. Uh, give me the step-by-step -step when your first-year head coach sends a backup into a game <laughs> to pull you out. Well, it was interesting because I think it was my eighth season, and I would say the first five or six years you go by and you don't miss a snap, but it's not really mentionable because it's just not that rare. I mean, plenty of people do it every year, um, so it's not the most rare thing in the world. But by about year six or seven, uh, people started taking notice that I hadn't missed a snap. And so by year eight, I knew that I hadn't missed a snap, and it was kind of a streak that I was interested in preserving. And, and rightfully so. Rightfully so. I mean, there's no reason to just leave a game unless you have to at right. that point. And um, we were playing the Steelers, and um, we started the season really, really hot. And it was one of the first games in my career where we were actually blowing the opponent out. <laughs> <laughs> Usually we're the ones getting blown out. So it was a nice change of pace. Hey. And my coach uh, started subbing some of the better players on the team outs because he didn't want them to get hurt at the end of a a blowout game and um, you know of course I'm out there and I see the backup left tackle running onto the field at a timeout I'm looking over there I'm like who got hurt like what's going on and he comes over and stands next to me and says hey Joe I got you I'm like you don't got me I'm like get the f out of here <laughs> and and he's like oh, oh, you know and that poor guy you know he's just following orders and he's like oh, I don't know what to do and like so he's asking everybody on the line, hey, can I get you? Can I get you? And everyone's like, no, no, get out of here, get out of here. So, of course, he had to turn around and 
sprint his little butt back to the sideline and and the coach is like what's going on and you know I don't think it was till after the game that the coach realized that you know I had a streak that I didn't want to destroy just because we were winning a game and so I'm glad I did that but uh, I could also see myself just following instructions and turning around and running off the field without even thinking about it. And that would have been devastating. You know, it, it probably would have yeah. in hindsight, especially now knowing that I made it 10 years without right. missing a snap. What did the coach uh, say to you the first time you interacted? When yeah, you it was funny. After I think somebody on the sideline may have told him like right towards the end of the game. And so by the time the game was over, he came up to me and just said, Hey, Joe, I'm so sorry. I didn't know you had a streak going. You know, we were just trying to get you out of there because our center actually had gotten hurt in the game already. And he said, you know, we're winning the game. I don't want anybody to get hurt unnecessarily. Yeah. So uh, so you're obviously like, I, I mean, so statistically accomplished and the best at your position and will go down as one of the all-time NFL greats. Um, explain the difference, though, in notoriety you would receive if you were statistically as accomplished as a quarterback? <laughs> uh, it would be a little bit different. I'm happy that I'm not because I do like flying under the radar a little bit. Um, but certainly as a quarterback, you wonder you know, if I was as gifted at quarterback as I am as a left tackle, uh, you probably wouldn't be walking through the grocery store the way I do now, kind of unnoticed. Uh, so certainly there would be some benefits, but uh, I do enjoy some ambiguity a little bit. To what extent at times does it ever bother you that maybe you don't get the mainstream recognition uh -huh. that you've rightly <laughs> earned or you know deserved uh -huh. based on uh -huh. your success? I think as a lineman, you've, you've kind of been groomed to have a little chip on your shoulder and kind of appreciate working through the dirty, hard times and not getting any credit for it. There's a saying that uh, offensive line are, are mushrooms and it's considered a mushroom society because uh, everyone wants to throw us in a dark room and throw shit on us every day and then they expect us to bloom into something that's delicious <laughs> and that's kind of how they treat the linemen they you know shove you in the corner of the practice field you get your little five yard by five yard square and they throw a couple toys at you and you just push the sleds around all day meanwhile the skilled guys are out in the field taking up half of the field running their routes and getting all the, the cameras in their faces. They're making the over-the-shoulder sho catches. And when things go great, the quarterback's the first guy that gets the pat on the back and the receiver gets the hug. And the, the defensive end that made the game-winning sack gets lifted up and carried off the field. And nobody remembers the O-line uh, until you're the one that's giving up the sack that loses the game and then you're the GOAT. And you're the reason that we lost and we need to get you out of here. And so I think the um, sort of... Uh, business that we're in, we have to kind of accept that and, and have that we have to almost embrace sort of that mushroom society. And uh, so I think I, I feel like I'm definitely one of the guys that has done that. Yeah, I mean, in, they don't pay attention to you until, I mean, they, you, you almost force them to pay attention to you. So, I mean, how have you seen that start to change is mm -hmm. you're only having more and more success becoming mm -hmm. more and more mm -hmm. accomplished 
It's been interesting, uh, to say the least, because like you said, as, as a lineman, you only get noticed when you do something bad, typically. And so uh, as the Pro Bowls kind of have stacked up and the accolades have kind of come in from that perspective, it does come with some attention. And uh, it is difficult at times handling it. Um, but I think I try to have fun with it sometimes as well and, and try to enjoy some aspects of it. Um, so that has been kind of fun. What do you find difficult about it? You know, just the just the attention when you're, you know, just want to hang out with your family or when you're, um, uh, for, for me, I just kind of like a lot of just time with my friends and my family, just low-key stuff. Um, I just like being an everyday regular guy. And so sometimes uh, as you have more success in the NFL, it becomes a little bit more difficult to just be a normal, regular guy. What do you think is responsible for your success? Um, well, I got to thank my parents because um, certainly my DNA that they've given me was a predominant factor in my success. I don't think there's many five foot eight offensive linemen, especially left tackles out there. So being six, seven, or six, six, 300 pounds has certainly uh, been a big benefit. Um, and your kids are going to be similarly large. My kids are going to be You're large six, as seven, well. Your wife's six <laughs> Kids are going to be similarly large. Um, but I think too, you know, the kind of the work ethic and the toughness that they ingrained in me from when I was a kid certainly would uh, have a big impact on the type of football player that I've become. To what extent does fear of failure still motivate you? It's funny because I think that fear of failure was must have been bred in me or it was innate growing up. And it wasn't until college and the pros when I started talking to other players on the offensive line that have had a lot of success or coaches that have coached guys that have a lot of success. And they talk about what motivates them. And, and almost to a man, every one of them is motivated by the fear of failure, the fear of being the reason you lost or the fear of being the one that everybody on the team looks at and says, we need to get rid of this guy. And I think in a large part, that was always my motivating factor. And I think that's what kind of separates offensive linemen maybe from a lot of the other positions because we're judged by our lack of failure. So the more lack of failure we have, the better of a player we are. Whereas if you're a receiver or a defensive end, or a linebacker, you're only measured by the number of successes you have in a game. So if an offensive lineman has 70 snaps and, and I do 68 pancake blocks, perfect blocks, and then I give up two sacks at the end of the game with the game on the line, the fans and the coaches are going to be calling for my head at the end of a game. And nobody saw the 68 plays where I completely dominated my player. Um, but as a defensive end, I could be getting my butt whipped for 68 plays, but I make the one sack at the end of the game that seals the victory, and I'm the player of the game. And so I think sort of a mindset that you have to have as an offensive lineman is I am so afraid of at any moment getting beat that it motivates me to be perfect on every play. Uh, losing. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's your favorite topic, and it's to... No fault of yours, obviously. Uh -huh. You've played every snap you can. Mm -hmm. You've been to a Pro Bowl mm -hmm. every year since you've been playing, but the Browns have 
been horrible since mm-hmm. you've been uh, part of the team. How do you handle so much losing? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it's been really tough. Um, especially early in my career, it was really difficult because I came from a program at Wisconsin that didn't lose much. My senior year, we only lost one game. In high school, I went to the state finals twice in football, four times in basketball, and hardly ever lost any games. And I was ultra, ultra competitive, still am. But learning how to rebound from losing was probably the hardest thing that I had to do in the NFL because especially during my rookie season, it was very difficult to put everything you have into a game and not get the results and then turn around two days after the game and be ready to dive into the next week of preparation with all your energy and enthusiasm and positivity that you need to prepare for an NFL game the next week. So I think kind of learning how to bounce back was one of the most important things in my career. Well, and there was an interesting quote. There was an ESPN profile that was written on you, and I'm sure you read it, but the quote was, There's some, there is something romantic or maybe maniacal about a man who comes to work every day, pours his heart and soul into preparing for a game, and does so well that he grades off the charts but loses that game nearly every week and still comes back every Monday for more. <laughs> yeah, I'm disturbed for sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's the hardest thing in pro sports is to lose an NFL game because there's so few of them. Uh, in basketball, you play a game every night. You know, you lose tonight. Oh well, we got another game tomorrow. Um, and the preparation is just so different. In baseball, what do they practice a couple times in the spring and then you know, take batting practice during the year? But other than that, you just go play. There's not a lot of preparation involved. But in football, you literally put an entire week's worth of work into every single game. And we're not talking about a 40-hour work week. We're talking about a 60, 70-hour work week, you know, 10 to 20 hours of film study on your opponent alone for that week. And you put your entire heart and soul emotionally, physically, mentally in a game, and then to come up short, sometimes through no fault of your own, it's something that's difficult for the human mind to wrap themselves around, especially in most sports where you have a great deal of influence over the outcome. How does it affect you, the losing, still to this day? Well, I think it's really hard Monday Um, and it's really hard on Tuesday, but I think I've programmed myself enough where each week is like its own year in my life. And so a loss on the first week won't affect my second week of play because kind of have a two day rule. So Monday you feel horrible, Tuesday you feel horrible, but by the time I wake up on Wednesday morning, I've programmed and demanded on myself that I have forgotten about what happened the week before. I've taken the lessons away that I need to take, but now I'm completely focused on the next week. To what extent, even if not for you, do you think mediocrity almost has become normal or acceptable to some? Well, I think it's it's easy for some people to just accept uh, their situation and... Um, it's important in the NFL to constantly be striving for improvement, no matter who you are, no matter 
if you're Tom Brady or if you're the last person on the roster, I think it's important to understand that if you're not improving, you're getting worse every season. That's just the way the NFL is. Nobody stays the same. So if you don't think you're improving, you're probably the one that's getting worse. Uh, so I think even in year, going into year 11 for me, I feel like I've got this list of things that I want to improve on, and I'm going to work all offseason and all during the season and try to get better at those things. If it got to a point in Cleveland where you knew you just couldn't win and you had the opportunity to play for a team that you knew had a legitimate shot at making it to the Super Bowl, mm -hmm. how much consideration would you give that? Mm -hmm. I guess each opportunity is kind of its own entity that you would have to consider, but... Um... I don't know if the NFL is as black and white as fans sometimes think it is. Um, a lot of times fans think like, oh, the Browns, you'll never win. And, oh, the Packers or the Patriots or whoever, oh, they'll definitely go to the Super Bowl every year. But the predictability of the NFL just isn't there to me. And I guess maybe it's the eternal optimist in me. But I start every Cleveland Browns season thinking, you know, we got a pretty good chance. Like, this really could be our year to turn it around. And to me, it would just mean so much more to be part of building a champion, not just riding the coattails of a champion. And I, you see a lot of guys that flash Super Bowl rings and a lot of guys that didn't play it down the whole season. They got a Super Bowl ring, you know. Are they proud of that? I don't know. There wasn't a lot of work. I mean, there was some work that went into it, but um, I'm a firm believer in unless you have to give something up, what you get doesn't really mean anything. So unless you're the one that's on the field building the champion from the beginning, I don't know that that championship really has the meaning that it should. And to me, if, if I wanna win a Super Bowl, I wanna be a major part of the team that was built from the ground up and I was a big, piece of that puzzle. I was a big building block of that championship. I don't want to just ride the coattails of somebody else's championship just so I can say I won a championship. You almost got traded to Denver, or at least <laughs> there were serious talks. Mm -hmm. um, how did you feel about the Browns engaging in those talks? Mm -hmm. Doesn't bother me one bit. I'm old enough in the NFL to understand that this is a business we are poker chips in the game of the NFL. Um, yeah, but at the same time, I mean, here you are. I mean, now 10-year vet, Pro Bowl every year, played every snap, doing everything you can to make the team as successful as possible. You haven't, you know, asked for a trade. You've mm -hmm. been, uh, you know, the consummate professional. And here you are now in trade talks. I mean, I, un I can understand if, like, you're... Uh, you know, that's mm -hmm. interesting you a little bit, but if it's not and you want to mm -hmm. remain here, mm -hmm. doesn't bother you yeah. at all? Um, it doesn't because I understand that the NFL is what you've done for me lately, and it's also completely, excuse me, the decisions made by people running the team have emotion completely detached from it. There is no such thing as, well, he's been a great asset for our organization. He's, he's great with the fans, so we'll keep him around. It doesn't happen. It is a fiction 
of many people's brain. It's something that fans sometimes think happens, but as soon as you cannot produce for a team, you're gone. And so as soon as they can get something out of you that maybe is more than they think your value is to the team, they're going to trade you just because you were there for a long time or have done a a lot of good things for the team. Um, Unfortunately, that's just not the way this business model works, and I'm okay with that. So I understand that as an asset for the Browns or a commodity, if they feel that my value being traded is greater than the value I bring to this team, they're going to trade me. And that's their fiduciary responsibility to the owner that pays them every single week. And so by engaging in trade talks doesn't bother me one bit because I know that it doesn't matter who you are. I guarantee Bill Belichick has thought about uh, trading Tom Brady because he thinks he might be able to get a king's ransom. Um, so you just you can't take it personally. You can't have feelings involved in the NFL. It's not a personal business. It's not personal decisions. It's just part of the business. How does it make you feel when there have been a couple former teammates of yours who've said they hope you get traded to a winner? <laughs> well, it's nice of them to care about my personal interests so much. Um, and, and that's great. I, you know, there's, there's people that, that say, uh, you know, hey, you deserve to play for a winner. But my mind has always been, yeah, and it's in Cleveland, and I'm going to bring the winner here. Right. You know, there's no reason we can't do it in Cleveland. Explain the difficulty involved with so many quarterback changes as it pertains to your position. Well, it's really difficult as an offensive lineman to have a lot of different quarterbacks because our back is to the quarterback. So you never really know what he's doing. You can only hope based on the play call that you know what they're doing. And so when they're not doing what they're supposed to, whether it be because they don't know what they're supposed to do or they're ad-libbing. Um, it makes your job tougher because now you're always blocking for a spot. And if you don't know where that spot is, how do you block for that spot? Unless you either know where it's going to be or you're looking at it. And you're not looking at it because my back's to them. So it, it adds a definite level of, of difficulty. Plus, a uh, quality quarterback raises the level of play of everybody by how they get rid of the ball with their timing, how they coordinate the offense, um, the communication between the quarterback and all the different facets on an offense. So when you don't have that consistent quality play, it makes everybody's job tougher. How true is it that you once introduced yourself to the quarterback in the (laughs) huddle during an actual game? It's very true. Actually, one of my favorite... NFL stories. Uh, we were playing the Steelers last game of the year. We were out of the playoffs. I don't even know if they were playing for anything, but um, we were down to our fourth string quarterback going into the game <laughs> as a starter. Uh, Thad Lewis was the starter. And we signed a guy off the street a couple days before the game to be the backup because we had nobody left. And in the game, lo and behold, Thad Lewis gets hurt. And they bring this guy in that's only been there for a couple of days to be the starting or be to be the quarterback in the huddle. And he gets into the huddle during a timeout. And I thought it was a perfect time to introduce myself since I had never met him before. So I just <laughs> reached out my hand and said, I'm Joe Thomas. I'm your left tackle. Nice to meet you. And he said, hey, I'm Josh Johnson. Uh, it's great to be here. 
And then he proceeded, I think, get sacked on the next play. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Married life. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was talking to your wife, Annie, uh, the other day, and she told me something which I just found unbelievable. Um, You actually asked her out in college right in front of her (laughs) then-boyfriend. Which I didn't know at the time, but I did. And he was there... He was there. He Here, wasn't much oh, bigger wait. than you, so it was not an intimidating presence. And he overheard everything, or or, or at least when she came back. Uh, I mean, you you tell the story. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, we were outside of a uh, restaurant establishment, and uh, I saw her, and I had kind of known who she was because she was an athlete. She was on the basketball team. We share workout spaces in the workout facilities at Wisconsin. And she also actually lived across the street from me. So when we'd be buzzing to class in the morning on our scooters, we'd pass and stuff. And she was pretty darn cute and tall. And she had a lot going on for her. So I was like, okay, all right, I know who you are. (laughs) And then so it wasn't until you had uh, a little bit of an opportunity um, in a casual setting to, you know, maybe make a move is uh, when I made the move. And I actually did not know that she had a boyfriend at the time. It was not apparent. Um, He was not nearly as good looking as you, Graham. So, of course, uh, I was unintimidated at the time by his presence. And so, um, yeah, I just took the opportunity to try to get her number and talk to her a little bit. And I think at the time she was just being polite and respectful and was thinking, boy, this jerk tried to get my number and I'll probably hopefully never have to see him or talk to him again. But she gave you the right number. Uh, apparently, uh, yeah. you know, because I tried calling her maybe a few weeks later or a week later or a few days. I, I don't remember exactly. And no response, though, at that time. Oh, So she no told response. me that it was a really long time before you called. I believe that was false. Okay. I believe what actually happened is I called uh, shortly thereafter a meeting and she just didn't answer because she was dating or whatever. Mm-hmm. So she did the appropriate thing and was not returning my phone call. And so at that point, I just kind of gave up on it. I was like, nah, you know, she's not interested or whatever. She's got a boyfriend. And I think things were deteriorating rapidly at the, you know, emotional uh, college girlfriend-boyfriend relationships. And you were, you were uh, pulling at her heart. Yes, uh, of course, the heartstrings. I had her captured. And... Um, it wasn't until that summer where she just kind of randomly called me out of the blue, called me back. This was after she had kind of broken things off with the boyfriend, and, and I got really excited when she called. And, uh, you know, things kind of blossomed from there. And uh, is it true that one of your pickup lines was, can I take you out on my canoe? That was the pickup line. <laughs> yes, it was. Um, I said, uh, yeah, hey, I've got this amazing canoe on the uh, water. My apartment that summer had a pier right on the water in Wisconsin on uh, Lake Mendota in Madison. And it was a beautiful spot. And I thought it'd be just a romantic uh, little date we could go on. I'd take her out in the canoe, you know, little paddle around the capital. How do you beat that for a first date? And when but she didn't think it was as awesome as I did. She did not. <laughs> and we never did it. So. Oh, okay. And then you guys, like, I guess a year into dating, go on a camping trip. And I understand you almost pushed her over the edge in terms of her uh, patience by jumping into the tent full of water and sand. Yeah, so uh, at that point, of course, early on when you're dating somebody, you don't know a lot, everything about them. 
uh, you kind of know what they want you to know about them. And so I'd had no idea she had this amazing aversion to sand and dirt. And so we were camping on the Wisconsin River, which is this beautiful river that's filled with sandbars. And we, so we had our tent pitched on a sandbar and it was a really, really warm summer day. It was in the 90s. And so before bed, I wanted to cool off because we were in a tent that didn't have air conditioning. And so I jumped in the river Well, the mosquitoes were kind of out at the time. So as soon as I got out of the river, I like sprinted across the sandbar and dove into the tent to get away from the mosquitoes. Well, of course, if you're soaking wet running across a sandy beach, you're going to be covered in sand when you jump into the tent. And so for me, it was no issue. Sand doesn't bother me whatsoever. Uh, very few things bother me. But for her, she was like freaked out that I had, was, had brought all the sand into the tent. But of course, when you're first dating somebody, as you know, you got to act cool and calm like you're not freaking out. And so it wasn't until many, many months later that I realized how upset she was that I just <laughs> filthed the tent with sand that night. And she's, she was a college basketball player. Mm -hmm. uh, how competitive is she? Oh, man. It was ugly. Uh, she is super competitive to this day. And it's so bad that we really can't even compete in a lot of basic uh, things like like what we can't play cards, we can't play board games, because she's just so competitive and I'm so competitive that they would always end in a fight. Like what? Give me an example of what's happened before when you've tried. Well, now that we've uh, been together for quite some time, I know all the nice buttons to push to really get her going, and you just get, get her out of her game. You know, you get in their head a little bit, and then you swing the advantage in your favor. So we like to play cribbage, which is kind of an old time card game. Okay. And uh, so whenever we play, I always tell her that she's never beaten me in cribbage, which clearly is false because she, I think she's probably beaten me one time, maybe or two. But uh, she, would, she would get so upset because she wallops me all the time. And, but I would never admit that she beats me. And so she would get so upset about it. And she'd be so competitive during the game that she would just finally say we're never playing cribbage again and we'd get in a big fight about it <laughs> <laughs> um so you guys say i guess had been dating about a year in college when somebody says to her um that you might be leaving for the nfl draft what was her reaction well i think she was confused i mean i was sort of taken aback by it myself because like i mentioned i had never really thought about the nfl until that point and so i think she was a little bit confused thinking that well he's only a junior he's not going to leave until he's done playing in the, in college and even then he's probably not good enough to play in the NFL and, and she had no idea that you had a chance at the NFL right, right. I, I don't think either of us did I mean when life was so simple in college you worked out you went to practice you came home and you ate crappy food and then you drank beers with your friends and then you just did it all over again and it was it was amazing but you just never thought about anything outside of that and she was the same way and I don't think she really thought about you know me playing in the NFL was not not on my horizon and I mean she was a Badger fan and she liked football but she was not like a super fan or anything like that so uh, you obviously get drafted third overall. Um, in what ways were you frugal when you first came to the NFL? <laughs> oh. Well, uh, in college, you get a scholarship check for 
a few hundred dollars a month and that's all you have to live on. And so my rent in college was 300 bucks a month, which I thought was high. And, you know, my food bill was maybe a couple hundred bucks a month, which I thought was outrageously high. And so uh, we were used to spending five or 10 bucks a week on auxiliary things, you know, I'll, you know, gas for my moped, that was about a dollar. And I had to put in gas every couple weeks. And outside of that, maybe a couple of drinks at the bar, that was the only spending you could afford. And that was great. Life was awesome. There's nothing else you needed. Um, but, you know, you get to the NFL and you buy a house and then all of a sudden it's like, you know, we need to buy furniture. And I'm like, all right, well, great. Walmart or Big Lots, it's right down the street. You can get some really nice quality stuff for good prices. And she's like, well, I want to get an interior decorator. And, you know, anybody that's ever had an interior decorator understands that uh, they're not going to Walmart and Big Lots <laughs> to pick out the furniture. And then it's like, you know, $1,000 for new curtains and drapes and stuff. And I'm like, what? No way. There's no way we're going to spend that type of money on curtains and drapes. And this is ridiculous. And that's what she said. She said, you guys legitimately got into a it fight a over fight. curtains. Yeah, it was a fight because I was like, no, that's a tremendous waste. I don't care about the curtains. Like, it's That's the dumbest thing on earth. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> like, I, I, even to this day, I just don't understand it, but I've understood that it's going to be a fight if I try to understand it, and so I just leave it alone and <laughs> put that into her little bucket of responsibilities, and I'm like, I, I, still, I still have a hard time comprehending why people spend so much money on a house, like on the inside of it, but I've accepted the fact that it makes other people happy and interested, so I'm like, whatever. But typical guy just doesn't care. What do you think is responsible for you uh, knowing to be frugal? I think it's how we were both raised, honestly. Um, as I've gotten to know my wife's parents and her family, we just come from really frugal families, and we've never, our families have never wasted money on things that aren't practical. And uh, especially my dad and, and even her dad. They're extremely practical people. Like, if it doesn't have a practical purpose, it it serves no purpose in their lives. And I think that's just kind of how I was raised. Completely function over form. And um, my dad, growing up, had a car that didn't go in reverse, and he saw no problem with that because you put it in neutral and you stick your foot out the door and you do the Fred <laughs> Flintstone, and there you go. There's your reverse. It doesn't cost you anything. And, you know, that's just kind of how we were raised and never saw any problem with that whatsoever. And, uh, you know, that's how Annie was raised. So um, that's just kind of been our mindset our whole life. And now, you know, being in the NFL for 10 years, obviously we, we buy some nicer stuff. But uh, um, some of it I still just don't understand, like the curtain thing. That's just crazy to me. I just don't get it. So your wife grew up in the country as well. Her family had a Christmas tree farm. Mm -hmm. um, it was a shared dream of both of yours to one day have a farm. And I understand from talking to your wife, I mean, you won't even buy a television set without spending a year researching <laughs> what the best one is to buy. Uh, so yes. so um, what was involved on your end in the search for your perfect farm? Well, that comes from my dad. Um, if he's going to go out and buy a toaster, he's going to read all the consumer reviews. He's going to go online and read 
personal stories and reviews. He's going to go to find out the durability and people that have owned it for several years. And we're talking about a $80 toaster. And so <laughs> I think that's kind of um, what I learned from one of the things I've learned from him. Um, before I buy anything, I want to make sure that this is a good purchase. This is going to be an asset in our life that we're going to you know, use and uh, we're going to utilize. And it's not just going to be a waste of money and something that you just throw away in a few years. So um, when you're talking about a real estate purchase or a big purchase like a piece of land or a farm, um, I want to make sure that this is the right decision. So I'm, I'm kind of detail-oriented in, in some aspects of my life, and that's kind of one of the aspects. I'm big into Excel spreadsheets and um, writing everything down, pros and cons, and, and thinking about it and sleeping on it and all the different little tricks people have to make the right decision. I do all of those. And so um, from the time I was a little boy, I always knew I wanted some property in the country because I was a Tom Sawyer kid my whole life. I was, like we said, outdoors as much as I could be. And I always dreamed of having land for me and for my family and my kids to be able to spread our wings and run around a little bit and, and have some fun. And so once I got to the NFL, um, I think I realized that I would have made enough money in the NFL to be able to afford to buy a farm and kind of make that childhood dream a reality. Uh, and so it ended up being about a five-year process from the time I started looking for land and a farm before we actually found the right piece and uh, we settled and, and bought it. What made it take so long? Well, um, I wanted to research all of the possibilities for buying a farm. I wanted to know um, what was out there, you know, from, from A to Z. I wanted to know the supply. I wanted to know everything about it. And then I wanted to walk the properties. I wanted to visit friends' farms. I wanted to um, do research on the different areas and really find out what I liked. Because until you've experienced something or owned something, you don't really know what you don't know. So I wanted to get as close to the ownership experience before I bought, before I could figure out exactly what I wanted and what I needed. And so, you know, we looked at tons of different properties and we walked a ton of different properties all over uh, the Midwest and all over Wisconsin. And um, so it wasn't limited to just Wisconsin. It was no, I mean, we kind of knew done. based on where our families were, okay. that, um, you know, Wisconsin was the right spot. It was, uh, you know, it's a beautiful state that's got so many things to offer. It's got um, you know, everything we were looking for and it's close to home. But we weren't going to just limit it and say it had to be Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. uh, it just so happened that the perfect piece, uh, the perfect farm was in Wisconsin for, for our family. What's been involved on your end in trying to turn it into this wildlife preserve? Well, um, part of the reason that I wanted a farm, because I always thought that land and country living was a great way to raise your kids. And it's a great opportunity to do family activities together. I think um, there's very few activities in today's world that a whole family can enjoy together. Those experiences that you have together and everyone has just as much fun. Um, I think one of those is like a sporting event, maybe doing some type of outdoor activity, you know, skiing, that type of thing. And 
And then to me, like you're fishing, you're hunting, you're camping, you're hiking. Those are the other activities that you can kind of do as a family and everyone can enjoy it. And so we always wanted a place that we could go with the family and, and enjoy things together. Um, but so, I mean, with actually turning turning it into wildlife. Oh, yeah, preserve. yeah. yeah. That, well, I didn't answer your question, yeah. of course. You can, you can say that to me. I'm not sure if you're, like, trying to avoid that. Uh, like, I, I know yeah, you're, yeah. you're, like, private about the yeah, farm, yeah. but, man. Just, no, <laughs> so, um, so with that being said, um, <laughs> uh, we wanted to try to, you know, um, give our family as many great opportunities as we could when we went out there. And part of that was trying to turn it into like a beautiful place, not only to look, but to be able to enjoy activities like fishing and hunting and just seeing wildlife. You know, my wife's not a hunter. Um, maybe my kids will want to enjoy turkey hunting or deer hunting or squirrel hunting or, or whatever. And maybe they won't. And, and that's just fine because just being out with nature, being able to go on a walk and, and seeing a deer or a turkey or seeing an owl, those are things that are important. So for me, kind of um, improving the habitat for wildlife has always been, um, you know, kind of a passion. Um, what sorts of different animals do you have? Uh, just like the rest of Wisconsin, deer, turkey, bobcat, um, owls, squirrels, rabbits, uh, coyotes. I understand you know the name of every deer on your property. <laughs> uh, that would be a little bit of a stretch. Um, none of them actually have names given by God you, you, or their you, family. You've given them, but names, occasionally, so. occasionally, if the deer is uh, you know unique and interesting, uh, we like to name the deer just like we like to name the cattle on the farm for the kids. Uh, it's kind of a fun thing that we'll do because then. Um, it's a way for us to kind of get the kids excited about going out to the farm is, you know, you talk about, oh, did, were you going to go see Sox, the uh, beef cow, or are we going to go see Casper, you know, the all-white cow, or, uh, you know, stuff like that. It kind of makes it fun for the kids when you, when you give them names because it, then it, it makes them feel like uh, they have, like, a connection with, with the animals. And tell about the yearly spring hunting hunting trip that you take and why everyone was so ticked off at your wife in 2016. <laughs> well, we like to get together, um, me and a bunch of my high school and college buddies, and, and do um, some turkey hunting in the spring. And uh, Unfortunately, last year we had a, a new baby, and uh, the wife put the kibosh on the uh, spring turkey hunt last year, which was kind of sad, and I think uh, all my friends were a little upset with her. How concerned are you, though, about the lasting impact playing could have on your brain? Sure, there's definitely a, um, a concern, but I think um, the way I look at it is just about every profession in our society, there's uh, some lasting effects, and, and it's just the way that our society is set up, people have to work. And so if I was uh, a stonemason, or if I was a painter, or if I was you know, uh, building bridges or whatever, there's gonna be some wear and tear on your body and your brain, and, and that's just the way it is. My, my wife's uh, grandfather worked in a tire factory for like 50 years, breathing in all those horrible chemicals, and um, every job that we do in America, there's gonna be some, some negative effects, and uh, you know, that's just part of it, and I think, you know, to be able to live 
the lifestyle and provide for my family that football has been able to do, um, to me, it's it's a trade-off I'm, I'm willing to accept. Right. I mean, some jobs have... Much well, I mean, look at you. You, you sit in a chair all yeah, day. I mean, your, gosh, your hip flexors are probably short. Is you probably have a getting, bad back. <laughs> you know, you probably have to have the walking, the standing desk. Uh, I mean, all right. that travel. Can you imagine the yeah, brain? I mean, how, how do you survive it's, the it's, lack it's of so oxygen horrible. up right. in the air? Right. I mean, exactly. It's terrible. But, I, I feel mean, bad for you. Are you worried about your brain? <laughs> your your wife, though, is concerned. I mean, she yeah. told me. Well, she's know, the one that's going to have to deal with it. Right. Who are you? Where did I get here? Right. Um, but I mean, she's told me like, you guys will be driving and uh-huh. you'll get upset and she'll be like, that's it. It's starting. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And you'll be like, no, somebody just cut me off. <laughs> but, but I mean, how do you yeah. actually handle yeah. those yeah. concerns? I, I think, um, from my perspective, just kind of being good natured about it, hopefully will help. Um, I definitely expect, uh, memory loss. I think you do. Yeah. Oh, I'm already seeing memory loss and maybe that's just because of my old age or maybe it's football it's hard to tell i mean there's no double blind studies when it comes to people's life it's just i think a part of sometimes getting older and it's hard to tell if it's because of football or if it's just because of uh you know you're 32 and you're not 21 anymore and you've got a lot of stuff going on in your life but um like like what sort of just memory memory loss loss. just short-term memory loss hard hard times remembering like um, things that have happened recently, like, you know, you walk to the grocery store and you're like, huh, I can't remember what I needed to get. You know, just little stuff like that. And I think if you let it really bug you, um, I think it can make you depressed and feel sad. Like, wow, I don't have the memory I used to have. But, you know, I, I try to be relatively good natured about it at this but, but point. But do, does it bother you a little bit? Like, not entirely sure? Yeah, maybe maybe a little bit like, oh, you know, is this because of the football? Is that why I'm having a hard time remembering some of this stuff? Or is it just because, you know, as people get a little bit older, they have a harder time remembering things? And now I'm not trying to um, make light of guys that have really significant right. memory loss and dementia. Those are very course serious things and you know hopefully I'm not going to be there down the line but I think you know um I tell Andy I'm like well if I forget who you are just don't be mad about it that doesn't mean you know I'm I don't love you anymore just remind me you know just just tell me what's going on and you know I'm okay with that uh and and you know maybe I'm making light of a a serious issue but I don't want to you know convince myself worry myself too much about it um right now um because I think you can scare yourself. You really can. Because there are some obviously really terrible uh, side effects of the brain injuries that we see from playing in the NFL as long as, uh, as I have. Well, if you're being completely transparent, what does concern you the most on that front? Well, I think when you look at some of the really serious uh, side effects and diseases that have come from um, the brain injuries that you receive playing football. You know, you look at guys with significant Alzheimer's and dementia and the mood swings and the suicides that unfortunately NFL players have um, been faced with and depression, Lou Gehrig's disease. These are all things that have kind of been linked to the brain damage from football. And those are obviously extremely scary and frightening things. But, um, you know, I think... From, from my perspective, it's, 
I can't do anything about it. This was the profession that I have already chosen and, all, and most of the damage has probably been done already. And so what are the things that I can do to try to minimize my chances of having those negative effects down the line and then do everything I possibly can and then I just can't worry about it. I just have to um, accept it and try to live my life right now as best as I possibly can and to, to the fullest extent and hope that you don't have any of those really negative brain consequences. And of course, you know, your body breaks down too. So there's a lot of concerns with your physical health. Um, but I do hope that medicine continues to improve. And so in 10 years, maybe they'll be able to fix my body better than they did for the poor guys that are crippled up from playing in the NFL in the 60s and the 70s. So the remaining moments I have with you I want to talk about uh, some current NFL topics. The Sweet. first one being, I think, your favorite topic, and that being <laughs> Commissioner Roger Goodell. Um, why do you think Goodell is like Vince McMahon? Uh, well, I think because something that fans sometimes miss, and it's, I think, intentional from uh, the NFL standpoint, they like this, is that the NFL is an entertainment business. As much as the NFL wants to sell to its fans that it's a pure game, it's all about the game, it's all about competition and who wins, it's not really about that. It's the entertainment. That's why people show up on Sundays. That's why people watch from their couches, millions of people all over the country and all over the world, because it's entertaining. That's football. Football's entertaining. That's why it's the number one sport in North America. Not because it's the most pure game and there's the greatest... Uh, search for the, a champion, and that might be part of it, but it's the entertainment side of it, which is the same thing that Vince McMahon's in charge of. He's in charge of entertaining, and that's why people show up to watch wrestling events. And so Goodell's sole mission, and that's why he was hired by the owners, was to make the most money and to try to build the best product to entertain the most fans, because that's how you make the most money. What do you think of Goodell's judgment? Um, I think that Roger is a extremely smart man. I think he's a very, very good man, and he's done a phenomenal job for the NFL owners, taking the league to unprecedented heights in revenue. Um, I think he's made some some very big mistakes in how he's handled players, specifically coaches, in fairness in meeting out discipline um, specifically and I think um, like what uh, well I think the things that he's made the biggest mistakes on not that anybody cares what I think about it because I'm not the commissioner and he doesn't work for me um, but I think yeah but you've also because of your success earned the earned a voice yeah people like uh, let me put it this way fans seem to not like Roger for the way he's punished their favorite teams and their players. So uh, I never sought out uh, publicity about my opinions about Roger's job that he's done at times, um, but it has become popular because people like when players speak bad about the things that Roger has done to their favorite teams. And so specifically, I think Deflategate was a big, big issue. Obviously, I think he, the, the job that Roger did handling that I thought was um, very poor in, in uh, the face of overwhelming scientific evidence that 
the Patriots did not deflate their footballs. Um, he still decided to suspend the guy four games, which is equivalent to using steroids, which, as we all know, would give you an enormous uh, competitive advantage. Uh, in addition to that, even if he was deflating him, I'm not sure why we're supposed to care as fans or players or as anybody. I don't even know why you have a rule about how inflated the football has to be. If a guy, and this goes back, this goes back to the fact that the NFL is an entertainment business. If the guy wants to throw a pancake out there, but he can throw 100 yards down the field and complete 90% of his passes, that's better for the fans. They love to see entertainment. They love to see offense. We should be encouraging these things. These are the exact type of things that you should be encouraging out of the players. You should be encouraging Tom Brady to try to do his job as well as he possibly can within right. some type of framework. And the only reason you would have like steroid guidelines is because we know that steroids are harmful to players' health. That's why we ban steroids. Not because we don't want to see superhumans running around crashing into each other. Well, right, but you have to have some set of uniform rules and regulations, even not just against things that are health. But, but, but if, if it's equal, why would you have the rule? Mm -hmm. that's, my, that's my question. Mm -hmm. So as long as everybody's allowed to deflate their footballs, why should we care? If it's better for the game, if it's more offense and it's more entertaining, we should be encouraging these guys to do it. So as long as it doesn't give you uh, an unfair advantage, which in my opinion and the opinion of most people, it's more of a comfort thing. It would be, to, to me, the, the way I saw the deflated football thing was more like I get to wear a pair of broken in shoes because I like these shoes, they're more comfortable to me. And for, for Tom Brady, maybe he liked the football that was a little softer so he could grip it a little bit better. I don't know why anybody should care. You think Goodell should still be commissioner? You know, that's not my decision. And I think that- I mean, it, if it was your decision. If it was my decision, if I was a player or if I was an owner? Uh, how about both? All right. So if I was an owner, I would love Roger Goodell because he has taken every single bullet from the NFL that's come, in their, way, that's come their way. He's been compensated handsomely for it. Um, he's made him an incredible amount of money and revenue. He, he was able to leverage the players and, and win some significant concessions from the players in the last bargaining agreement. Um, so he's, he's done tremendously well for the owners because they've stayed out of it and they're squeaky clean and he's taken every bullet and he's made them huge amounts of money. Um, so from their standpoint, he's done a fantastic job. So if I'm an owner, I'm thinking Roger Goodell is our guy. He is awesome. If I'm a player, um, I would ask him to maybe change some things. I think that he could do a good job. Well, yeah, but that, I mean, it, so... It would if you were a player, would you keep him as? No, if I was a player, I wouldn't. I would put somebody in charge. But this is a player standpoint, so right, it's sure. kind of kind of silly because if the players were running the league, it'd be silly. But uh, if I was a player, certainly I think the mistakes he's made with um, his discipline in Deflate Gate, his discipline in the Ray Rice situation where he disciplined him, and then when the P the PR was bad on the NFL, they went back and they threw the book at him, and then now he's not in the league. Um, you look at the Saints' bounty gate. I played with Scott Fujita, who was kind of wrapped up in that thing, which I thought was handled poorly on, on Rodgers' behalf. I thought that um, you know, disciplining some of the Saints players 
for doing something that the whole league had been doing and disciplining him as um, steeply as he did was not fair. I thought that maybe the best way to handle it would have been sort of more of a political approach where you kind of let the player let the let the teams know that hey we've come under the uh, uh, we've become aware of a situation where you know the coaches and players might have little pools of money going for players getting big hits or injuries or, and we don't like that that has no place in the NFL we're going to stamp that out and if this next year we find out any of that is happening then we're going to punish people you know it's almost like uh, I think the approach that he took was we're going to try to crucify one person so that everybody gets the message and I don't know if that's the best way to uh, run your your league so if I was a player I would I would uh, I would remove him but nobody cares what I think so um, Johnny Manziel uh-huh um, how did your view what was your view of him when you were teammates and what about now um, I love Johnny. I think he's a great person. He's very friendly. He's, he's uh, a lot of fun. And um, I think that's probably been a big uh, part of his struggles in the NFL, though, is he's got so many friends. He's got so many people that want to be with him and want to hang out with him that um, it detracts from his focus on being uh, a quarterback. And to be an NFL quarterback, you have to be so obsessed and committed to the game that you almost have no time in your life for anything but a little bit of family and the rest of it is being a quarterback. And that's a commitment that few people are willing to make. Um, it's almost a commitment above a level of a coach. But if you can't have that level of commitment, you almost can't succeed in the NFL as a quarterback. In what way were the distractions evident when he was here, like to you personally? So being a quarterback just starts when everyone leaves the building at the end of the day. Like as a lineman, as a receiver, the rest of the team. I mean, meetings are over, you watch your film. You know, the guys that stay the longest besides a quarterback might watch an hour of film after meetings are all over at the end of the day. Well, a quarterback, he needs to be there from 6 in the morning until 11 p.m. He needs to have coaches' hours. And um, if you don't do that, you just can't make it. And so if you think that you're going to go to work and then leave after meetings and go to dinner and a, a basketball game and go get drinks with friends during the week, during the, uh, during the season. Just, you can't do it. It's just not going to happen. And if you do it, you won't be properly prepared on a Sunday. Yeah, so that was like when you were seeing, well, well let me, if you were seeing that at the time, did, did you ever, ever want to like pull them aside and say, hey? Well, I think it's, it's, uh, it's tough when a player, it, it, it's, it's tough if you're not a quarterback to coach a quarterback. Um, I think that's probably the overwhelming theme, you know, if, if well, I don't know. It, it's, it's, as a quarterback, you have to be self-motivated, I think. But did you ever wonder if you should, or did that ever cross your mind? Um... I guess it never really got to that. Okay. You know, his, I think his time in Cleveland was rather short. You know, um, we had discussions and, and you talk, but um, in, unless as a quarterback you're, you're self-motivated to do those things, uh, nobody's going to talk you into something you don't want to do. 
Yeah. Um, JJ Watt, uh, how did you go about finding out the connection you two shared? Well, I actually knew him a little bit in high school. Uh, he grew up, I don't know, five or ten miles from my hometown, from my house. You know, he grew up in Pewaukee, and I grew up in Brookfield. And if you look on a map, they touch. And I grew up on the I grew up where I could have thrown a, a stone across the road into Pewaukee. So we grew up pretty close together. And then when I was in the NFL, um, maybe my first year or two, he was in high school, and I remember working out at the same facility that he worked out at. Um, and then I remember when he was in college, seeing him work out there. And um, even at that time, he had not really made a huge name for himself yet because uh, he was kind of a late bloomer, really. I mean, he started as a walk-on and then uh, transferred into Wisconsin, only played one year there. And then um, even I remember going into the draft, they thought, you know, he'd be maybe a second round, maybe a end of the first round pick. And then he went to the combine and his numbers were off the chart and he shot way up the draft and became one of the higher picks. Um, so I forgot what your question was, but that was oh, a lot of answers you, about yeah, JJ. How did you go about finding out the connection <laughs> you shared? Yeah. But, uh, what, so you guys early on talked about, you know, kind of living close together. And yeah, I mean, it was that. just natural because, yeah. like I said, um, we grew up so close together that I just, the first time I met him, it was like, oh, hey, this is, you know, JJ, he's from Pewaukee, and he's getting some looks to play college football. And, mm -hmm. You know, nice to meet you, that type of thing. And um, so from the moment I met him, I knew he was from Pewaukee. <laughs> How crazy was it, though, to see this guy who's one town over also become one of the top players in the well, NFL. Well, it is crazy to me because Wisconsin is not exactly a huge state. We don't even have one city that's huge. Like Milwaukee's our biggest city, which is the suburbs that we grew up in, and it's not exactly a football powerhouse. I mean, mm -hmm. we're now kind of known for our linemen because in the last 20 years or so, Wisconsin has produced a lot of really good offense and de defensive linemen, but um, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of... The, the chances of having the defensive player of the year three times and uh, a lineman, offensive lineman that's made 10 Pro Bowls growing up within five or 10 miles of each other in very small towns is probably pretty slim. What do you think of the success he's had? I'm so proud of him. I mean, for me, I've got a lot of pride in my home state, especially in light of the fact that we don't produce a lot of football players. I'm very proud of my college at Wisconsin because we have a great tradition. Um, but we're not spoken about at the upper echelon of college football a lot like in Alabama, but we produce a heck of a lot of really, really good offensive linemen, not defensive linemen and football players. And I think it's great to get some respect for our state and our college based on the things that, you know, a guy like JJ does. So, uh, LeBron, <laughs> t tell about, uh, seeing him play for the first time in high school. Yeah. So it was incredible. I saw him, it was even before high school. I want to say we were maybe 13 or 14. And uh, my best friend at the time and I were playing on an AAU team for Wisconsin. And we went out to Las Vegas for a big AAU tournament. And uh, his team was the Ohio Shooting Stars. And I remember the program for the whole tournament, which was like, 500 teams from all over the country or something like that had him on the cover at like 13 or 14 
and even back then everyone was saying he's going to go to the NBA right from high school and he's going to be this phenom and so his games had like a thousand people at it and usually an AU game has your family and a couple friends and maybe like one guy that fell asleep in the bleachers or something like that uh but to see this huge crowd coming to his game to watch him and then i remember watching him play and just being amazed because he was so tall but he played like a guard and was just fantastic i just remember him we were you know 13 or 14 or whatever and he ran from one baseline to the other baseline and jumped up and blocked this guy's shot right against the glass like he's done in the nba a bunch of times and it was just incredible to see a 12 or 13 year old kid just be able to move and jump the way he did. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to my interview with Joe Thomas. To watch more of my time with Joe, including a tour of the Browns practice facility, driving around Cleveland with him, and cooking up some barbecue, visit youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger, and you can visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.